When you think of agile, what do you think of? Now, most of us probably think of software development, which replaces legacy waterfall practices. But we're seeing agile more and more in product service development, marketing campaigns, design, engineering, even construction. But what about M&A? My guest today is Keysant Patel. He's the author of Agile M&A and M&A Tactics. He's also the founder and CEO of DealRoom, a project management system for M&A. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Our visit with Keysant Patel is coming up next. We're going to spend most of our time talking about Keyson Patel's book, Agile M&A. But before we do so, the first question I just had to ask, how did he start Deal Room? What's the story behind it? Deal Room came, typical founder story, worked in the industry, did M&A advisory for about 10 years. Pretty familiar with some of the pain points, challenges, saw a lot of interesting tools software emerging at the time, the whole idea of social media, uh, social networks, Facebook, MySpace, LinkedIn. And what caught my attention was when I got involved with the Martex startup was the way software engineers would use project management tools to manage developing software. That's what led to the inspiration for DealRoom. Every time I saw these tools, I thought, why not for M&A? Then when I got validation, when I saw other industries adopting project management tools like the education construction space, so 2012 started the company deal room and went through a bunch of founder mistakes. You, you build the outline. That's, that's impossible. No way. <laughs> so it's, it, it took some iterations to really get foothold. But when we did, it was this focus on diligence management. So we originally started solving diligence management for investment banks, then shortly after shifted over to corporate, finding out that they were actually our early adopters. And we, since then, have expanded from diligence management solution to full M&A lifecycle management. So the front end, pipeline management, diligence management, and integration management, all on one database. You have you actually have an IT background before before the interview. I was looking at your LinkedIn profile, and I saw that your education is not. I didn't see MBA. I did not see finance. I saw IT. I did get very far, Mark. I took a couple of courses related to management information system, and technically failed out of undergrad. I, I'm having a hard time believing that. <laughs> no, it's true. I. I uh... You know, I can look back and say, hey, I, I struggled with a short tension span, which I, I feel like this whole next generation has. Uh, and, and when I got to, I got through high school just fine. I, I learned that if I read the book twice, so I'll make it through. But when it came to undergrad, well, I had a lot of lecture-based courses that I struggled with. And they, they weren't based on books I could read twice and ended up struggling and eventually failed out of school. Your your fir- your most recent book is M&A Tactics Handbook. That just came out this year, 2021. But we're talking about Agile M&A, the book that came out, I think, in 2019. So we're going to be focusing on it. Tell me about the journey to Agile M&A. This didn't just happen overnight. I, I'm assuming... 
you started with Deal Room or maybe Agile even went back before Deal Room. Is that correct? Are you of Agile? I think it's solidified more with Deal Room because at the time I had an engineering team that was reporting to me. And when I noticed the way they organized themselves and how we started having discussions about some of these agile techniques and approaches, that that's what caught my interest. And it kept this reoccurring theme of reflecting back to my own experience in M&A, thinking, hey, this is a really good technique for project management. Why didn't we do that in M&A? That would have made so much more sense. Uh, and then it kept drawing these parallels until I got to the point where I should document this. I should write some blog posts. I'm not sure anybody ever read those blog posts, uh, but it, it led me to reaching out to folks through LinkedIn when I wanted to identify with M&A and Agile and found a, a number of practitioners and eventually had conversation with folks at Google and Lassian to validate these ideas that these organizations were actually using these Agile practices in their M&A approach with great success. They've attributed a lot of the success and scale and efficiency to it. And that's what prompted me to put a book together. Like, hey, this is enough validation. I can develop some case studies off of these examples with some validated organizations or brands around it. And then that's uh, what led to starting that book, Agile M&A. Which, by the way, if I can interject real quickly, I am one of your readers. Your blog posting at dealroom.com outstanding. Do, do you do all of your right? You don't, you it's actually dealroom.net. I, I apologize. Thank you. Do, do you do, there's a dealroom.co too. So <laughs> do you do your own writing or, or is, do you have a ghost writer? I, when in the beginning I used to now, I don't think this whole year I wrote a single thing. I wrote some drafts, but I, I really don't write much at all now, Mark. Well, the, the content is good. So again, that, that was a faux pas dealroom.net. Uh, again, there, there's so many resources over there. So I just want just a quick shout out uh, on that. Uh, mindsets. One of your videos, you use the term mindset more than once. And I think that's a great way to start with this book, uh, Agile M&A. Let me throw out one mindset real quickly. Transform transformation versus scale, capability, or scope. What, what's the big idea there? It's a shift in what's prompting organizations to acquire other companies where traditionally it was getting more market share. It was, it was the things that um, you would typically expect for a company that's looking to grow aggressively uh, and maybe their organic means have tapered off. But now there's so much around organizations fighting to stay relevant just with this increasing pace of technological disruption that's happening in nearly every industry that, you know, we got the classic examples of the, the blockbuster videos and the Toys R Us or, or whatnot, that if you're not disrupting yourself, you're going to get disrupted. If you get disrupted by somebody else, then you're in trouble. You're either going to, uh, you know, have problems. You're going to have to get sold yourself. So the, that's that's the idea is looking at these transformative M&A deals as acquisitions that companies are making to disrupt themselves and adopt to these new uh, lines of business and change their business model 
so they can stay relevant. You mentioned disruption just a couple of times. That comes out in the very beginning of this book. Just off the top of your head, can you think of any recent acquisitions or even a few, maybe going back a few years, where that whole concept of we need to disrupt ourselves can you can you point to one or two acquisitions that this is a great example of that mindset coming to play? Oh, there's a couple of good interviews too. I know Duncan Painter, he led a whole turnaround of a company that was very focused on the print industry and shifted them to digital all through acquisitions. It was, I mean, they had hundreds of business lines are built around print that he had to go through and aggressively divest of and turn around and reinvest that capital in these arising digital business lines. Um, we, we work, we've done some work with Emerson and you see them doing the same thing. I think they recently had that big announcement that they're separating some of the, their larger uh, software investments into a different group, but they, they've been making moves in that direction, very non-traditional, uh, just manufacturing facilities, but getting more into the the software side of the business. Another mindset that comes out early in the book is the agile manifesto. And I, I wrote in an email message, even though I'm familiar with agile, I I don't think I'd ever read the manifesto from beginning to end the, the original one. Uh, You want to just comment on some of those key ideas, key points in that agile manifesto. I'm calling it the manifesto quote unquote yeah i i I like how you led with mindset because it it lends to that that here's agile uh you know how do you get people get your team to align with it how how do you get them to to think in a way that uh it's not about the process that at the end of the day we're people working together um i i think that that when you think of the mindset around that it's, hey, if I'm comfortable ripping up the plan and starting all over at any point in time, this is uh, ultimately a change-oriented culture. As we progress and move through our goals, that we, we want to constantly reassess our priorities and make sure as we progress that it's, our achievements are meaningful, they're impactful. Um, and that's where we, when we look at this plan-driven approach, you tend to get lost in it, where you sort of are working through a plan and it's, it's not aligned with what the actual value is. And that that's where I, I like the principles around that with agile, like you're prioritizing your specific drivers of value and software. You're prioritizing the feature sets that you're delivering and how you perceive the users will find value in them. In M and A, it's similar. We want to prioritize the value of the company organizations we're acquiring, and, and build around that. That these are the specific drivers of this deal. They're prioritized, and can we make sure we're we're capturing some meaningful value from it? My perception is that when we think about or see the the, the two letters M and A in the Wall Street Journal or elsewhere, we probably think of the deal. Uh, the financial model, uh, the price, the negotiation. But then there's that other piece, which we're going to talk about more, and that's the integration. So let me add to this long question. The four values of that manifesto, individual and integrations, working software, customer collaboration, change versus plan. 
as I started revisiting, as I went through this book a second time, I almost see those four values of the manifesto almost more applicable to the integration than the actual dev teamwork itself of identifying the company, doing the deal, structuring it. Feel free to push back or say, Mark, you're way off base. I think it becomes more important as you progress through the process. You know, obviously, if you're going to market, you're identifying targets to prioritize that. That's probably naturally happening. Uh, it's, it's when you go through a process and as you continue the process, you go through diligence and eventually integration, more people get involved, more information gets, uh, uh, opened up and, and, and digested. And that, that's where these things get really important because you, you tend to get, get um, things get pretty cumbersome, especially if you're following more of a plan driven approach. So can you, can you, Create this level of transparency is probably one of the first steps. I, I think we're shifting in general from that finance focus that you mentioned to a real people focus. Uh, and along with that is getting away from that. There is some level of data sensitivity and, and, and nature of secrecy, but I, it's changing. There's a lot of value in areas that you can be more open and transparent about. Um, particularly with that company you're acquiring and w- what that end state goal is, right? Because you should have something. And as you gather information, you should really solidify that as early and as soon as possible, but bring it to the front end of the process. Can I? Can we align our management team with the management team of that company we're acquiring on what we're trying to achieve with this acquisition and this end state? And then from there, start outlining what that go-to-market is going to look like and really start getting the thinking around how, how we're going to get there and how are you going to be involved in making that happen. So there's understanding around it. It's not you're going to collect a check and be out of here. Uh, there's The work's going to start once we close this deal. Uh, and then as you continue that process, I, I think this is where we really want to stay grounded on that end state that as we're doing our diligence, we can start planning integration. This is where a lot of those components of Agile fall in extremely well, that we're not creating some template plan and waiting for close to really detail out what we're doing. As we're collecting diligence, we're understanding the systems in place, the people involved, and we're developing that integration plan iteratively. Uh, And then again, aligning it with the value drivers of the deal so our actions are in that order of priority that we can capture the significant value that we're betting on early in the process and then get the next piece of value and, and move on down the chain. This book, Agile m and it's a quick read. I've already read it, by the way, twice. Have you ever get, gotten that feedback before? Uh, no. it's, it's, a, it's a quick, easy read. Chapter four, I'm going to just go ahead and say is hope I'm not criticizing when I say it's the heart of the book. You may say, Mark, the whole thing is the heart of the book, but I love chapter four, lots of actionable advice. So I want to pull out two or three key concepts concepts from chapter four. That's okay. Uh, sure. num- number one is game plan versus playbooks. And I felt like you were writing that to me because I'm a playbook person, but we can kind of get straight jacketed, uh, if that's a good term. Uh, but the whole concept of plays and game plan versus playbooks, jump in. 
It's a great concept. Yeah. Well, with playbooks, we we tend they're, they're very common, commonly used in our industry. They're checklists at the end of the day. Uh, I, I think at the end of the day, we we end up building these massive, comprehensive checklists. And the more important thing is to define the operating model. How are your teams going to work together? How are they going to be aligned? Are they sharing information? How are they conducting meetings? How are they managing dependencies? Like those things are actually more important to have defined. And that's where the idea of game plan and plays come in. Say, here's a game plan, which is comprised of a series of plays. And these plays are artifacts. They're laid out step-by-step techniques. And with that, you can create a configuration of plays to build a game plan. We borrowed this from or stole it from uh, Alassian. And it's just this is their team playbook model. We, we've adapted it and formatted it for M&A. Um, and it, it, the playbook, the checkbooks, the checklists are still there. Your playbooks are still there. The idea is can you fit them within a play? So there's a clear objective to it that, hey, um, you know, if we're really looking to understand the people in the organization and the key people, well, can we build that out as a play? And if there's that that checklist that needs to be part of it, can we put it as part of that play? So I, I think the idea isn't so much to get rid of playbooks, but to have them roll up into broader thinking that defines the way teams are actually operating. Because if you can get alignment on that area, then as you introduce some of these concepts like doing stand-ups, uh, you know, operating a prioritized backlog or uh, doing retrospectives, it becomes a lot easier to get those approaches and your teams aligned around them. Uh, another concept that I loved in the book, now I would generally work in smaller organizations hundred million dollars or less. So I'm smiling as I ask you this. We don't have corporate development teams. The corporate development team is just generally the management team and the, the, the founder owner, uh, the, the COO, if they have one, the CFO, if they have one, it's a small team. So they're doing the identifying, the buying, the negotiating and the integrating in, integration. But in your book, you clearly delineate the corporate development team and the integration team. And then the key concept where Agile comes into play is where they're working together. I know that may sound very basic. To me, that was an eye-opener. And and I highlighted, took some notes on that. Just just brilliant to bring that up. Yeah, they're, they're not. A lot of organizations look at them as two distinct functions, but they're, they're really not. I mean, you should look at diligence integration as one continuous process. With that view, it's either you need to have a true partnership between corp dev and integration, or you should really consider putting them together as one team, which we actually see happening more and more. I don't want to say this is ha-ha funny, but you mentioned three facts about M&A failure, and they are most M&A initiatives fail during integration. Number two, typically has nothing to do with the integration if there's failure. And then number three, integration team usually blamed for failure. Yeah, get the integration involved early as possible. A lot of organizations will build their valuation model, create a lot of assumptions on synergies, but not include the team that's going to be executing to capture those synergies. 
and help validate that those uh, figures earlier than later. And then planning perspectives as well, getting alignment with the management team of the company you're acquiring to get aligned around what the goals of the transaction are going to be, what's it going to look like, start building and shaping that end state. And I'm hoping that organizations that find deal room and they see this concept, I'm hoping that they embrace this idea very, very quickly. They're probably thinking, oh, yeah, that that makes sense, right? I, I hope. Not really. We got a lot of egos in our industry. Everybody thinks they're doing it the right way, whether <laughs> they're writing a whole deal process on Excel or, or whatnot. It's uh, sometimes it gets a little challenging, but you know, the, the big thing is spending the time to try to unsurface the pain points and challenges. And they're, they're there, whether it's, it's walking across the life cycle, identifying who the key personas are and spending those time, have those qualitative interviews and surface what, what are the pain points at the end of the day mark i think it's pretty fundamental people don't like to change they resist it uh the only way they will change is if you can give them a compelling reason to and that it's all done through discovery really taking the time to empathize listen to folks understand where they're coming from where their challenges are getting them to actually open up about it and then documenting it using that as the driver that hey Here's these uh, prioritized list of problems that we're looking to solve, and let's use that as our catalyst to change. That leads to a segue to another favorite point in this book. As I was reading your book, I could not get this book out of my head. We interviewed Bryce Hoffman earlier in the year. He wrote the book Red Teaming. What he's known for is writing the book American Icon. It's one of my all-time favorite business books. Uh, Incredible book. Uh, it it really is a book about Alan Mulally, the, the great CEO who took over Ford, really turned him around not once but twice uh, during his tenure. He came from Boeing. But Bryce wrote a book called Red Teaming. And in the book, there's a lot of frameworks uh, in there. One of the frameworks is pre-mortems and then also post-mortems. And I was even wondering before I finished up chapter four, uh, and, and if you haven't read the book yet, chapter four includes these seven or eight plays, which you got again from Alatsian. And I was wondering, I wonder if he's going to bring up after action reviews or, or some type of postmortems. And you did. And it's called retrospectives. I loved that part of the book. Can you just explain what retrospectives are. Again, it's a brilliant idea, concept. Yeah, I mean, our industry, people are familiar with postmortems. And here's the deal, it's done. Let's look back, talk about what went well, what didn't go well. Uh, the idea of a retrospective is instead of waiting for a project or deal to complete, you're doing them on a, a scheduled interval. You're doing a monthly, bi-monthly, and then you have this reoccurring time. And the idea is that you can make these incremental changes while your project's happening. Um, I, I liked one of the interviews I did with uh, a Harvard instructor that teaches Agile with Richard Kasparowski was that you you always, every time you do a retrospective, you'll find some areas to make some incremental improvements. Uh, and as you do this through a course of a year, and if you're doing them a couple times a month, then you end up 24 plus times that you can have opportunities to introduce these changes. You do this in a course of a year, you're going to make a dramatic amount of change in your team uh, with significant improvements. So, but yeah, I mean, the, those, that format's really helpful. The idea is to prep your team ahead of time, try to send them some questions so they can get thinking about some of the ideas they, they want to bring up. Uh, and basically that, that same logic of what's going well, what's not going so well, 
and having somebody there to, to document some of the ideas in terms of what are the ways to improve and encouraging those ideas to surface and, and, and adding them, just trying to find ways to make these incremental improvements. I think that's, that lends to this culture of continuous improvement. And when we look at this whole agile model at the end of the day, that's what we're striving for is to create a change oriented culture that's, um, you know, fostering this, um, continuous improvement. Do you have time for a quick lightning round? We don't do this with every guest. It's so it's this kind of special, uh, a tip of the cap to uh, James Kramer, uh, on, on lightning rounds. Uh, what we'll do is we'll just go through a few topics and just give us a quick, short answer. Well, then we'll go to the next one. We have about five or six of these topics. Can we do that? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, number one, uh, True North. Yeah, so True North is, um, the way it's defined, it's it's something that doesn't technically exist. It's the idea of a perfect state, but the idea is that you're striving for it, that it's something that you'll never be able to achieve but you're constantly striving for it. And it's a way to align your team for that uh, culture around continuous improvement. And what can we possibly do to improve every little thing? I don't care if it's, you know, taking the dust off of equipment or whatever it is, all these little things add up and we're all striving for this true North, this perfect state. The next one is, Oh, this is interesting. wonder who came up with this list. M&A and rugby. The, the team sport. Uh, I think that's the idea. Um, I'm trying to remember this one. I, I know we talked about the football one around the playbooks. That here's here's the playbooks to help them align and get coordinated. Um, I, I think the the nature. I'm trying to remember this one. There was something about the way they play rugby, and uh, I, I remember it came from agile. Uh, it's 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 about the way they played. I'm trying to blank on it. It's you did, a, something like. And by the way, just just so you to let you off the hook, you actually did not get into a lot of detail, but you did mention football, and then you did mention rugby. And I think the context there was you're looking at not a playbook necessarily, but again, the the context was you brought up again game plan, and then the whole concept of plays, and certain plays will lead to hopefully you know, a, a win. The, the The objective is still to win. But again, I think you're trying to emphasize, again, game plan and plays, not just the playbook. It was similar with the football one. You're absolutely right. It was, it was a, here's a game plan that's comprised of these plays that allow these teams to organize for given the situation. And, and that was the whole idea. And if you look at it, that's, what all these different teams are based off of is the way they organize themselves, the way they practice around applying these plays to overcome the situations that they're in. Next one, deal lead, deal lead. Deal lead's the one that takes control of the deal process, that manages the components of running through diligence, preparation for integration. And again, in a small business, Usually the CEO is going to be that deal lead or if he or she has a, a CFO. So then in bigger companies where you have the deal lead, there's also a deal a PM, deal PM. You, you can have somebody that's got more of um, the, the project management background is one, but more importantly, they know the business because the business is made up of a number of different functions and somebody that understands 
how those functions work together is going to be key for them to be a successful project manager. Last one. And this is a, I, I, again, I like this one integration charter. Integration charter sets out the thesis for doing the deal, lays out the big picture. Uh, this is where you want to prioritize your drivers of the deal. We're seeing more companies use OKRs, these objective key results to really define those uh, and, and have it part of your charter so you can reference it and, and really build uh, your your goals and teams around it. In our intro, we mentioned M&A Tactics, and I apologize, we didn't spend any time on that. That book just came out recently. You want to hit some of the high points uh, on that one? That's a fun book. We did a little handbook, and it, it actually started with one of our, our marketers that was really good at extracting quotes from our podcast. And I said, hey, why don't you make a little ebook? Why don't you organize? And she did, but she wrote a narrative to connect all these quotes together, and then it blew up into this, essentially, it's a handbook that takes highlights from all the podcasts that we did last year um, and, and ties it together into a storyline from the beginning of the deal process to then. And then if so, you don't, oh, go ahead. I apologize. Oh, no, no. I was just saying it's, it's, it's a fun one because if somebody doesn't have time to listen to all these podcasts, they can read through the highlights and then decide which are the ones that are more pertinent to them. So do we have permission in about three or four months to come back and talk about that book? Sure. Why not? Uh, you're on CFO Bookshelf. So we, we have to ask this question. No one is off the hook on this question. We ask everybody, what are some of their favorite books? It could be books that they also gift out to others or recommend. But what are some of your favorite books, whether you read or listen? Um, you know, if it's somebody like I'll mentor college students or, or young professionals, and I like Mark Golston's Just Listen, it's these PhD psychologists about empathy. But to me, that was one of the better leadership books I, I've read. Um, I also like Seeking Wisdom, which is like a compilation of some great world thinkers and particularly about what, what lends us to what biases lends us to making poor decisions and how, how do you be conscious about it and overcome it? Um, I'm, I'm reading 48 Laws of Power with my daughter right now and find that a trip. That's what, what a great exercise. Is she enjoying it? Uh, no, she's, it, she's 11. So it's way, way over her head. <laughs> 11. Is... You sound like something I, that's not like something I would do. <laughs> do, you, do you have an all time favorite book? I, you know, I don't That's a good, that's a tough question. There's some, they're just so, so many books and so different. Um, you know, on this, I've been doing a lot with sales cause we, we've been growing our sales team. Never split the difference is that real. I feel like all any good salespersons have read that one, but I like it has a lot, a lot of practical sort of, it covers a lot of empathy components, but gives you good application when it comes to the negotiations you encounter daily. Um, I don't know if I have like a real top, top favorite. It's uh, you know, seeking wisdom's right up there though. What, 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 what can potential users, customers, a deal room uh, expect? Boy, I, I would say the customers we focus on are corporate M&A. So a lot of times they're billion dollar plus market cap companies, or they could be private equity back doing some kind of industry consolidation. And for the, it's pretty straightforward. A lot of them are using Excel. If we see Excel, we know that's an opportunity to create massive amounts of efficiency gains. Uh, but we, what we do is, is a lot of times we're using Excel, emails, and, and virtual data rooms, but really condense all this together into one platform that allows them to run a full process end-to-end -end on a single database, which allows you to basically 
have much better collaboration across your different team members involved. So everybody's in the know, allows you to get people up to speed faster, but then also transfer knowledge from one stage to another. That's where we see a lot of these uh, challenges spur up. And, and, you know, if you don't get a good handoff from diligence to integration, then integration folks are re-diligencing the deal all over again, wasting a lot of time and getting a late start on their activities that are critical to realizing value from the transaction. And you don't start with a blank template. I was looking at some of the templates on your website. Those are outstanding. Uh, you've got about 24, 26 pre-formatted templates for anything and everything related to M&A. Again, so it's not like someone's going to be starting from scratch. Yeah, it all depends on the maturity. If they're early in the process, we have plenty of templates to help jumpstart. And some will even visit them and compare them to what they currently have. And if they're an organization that's more mature, we can customize for what they currently use. Uh, what what else? How else can we find out about you? imascience.com. That's kind of where we uh, have our a lot of our different products, but we have over 350 pieces of published content, eBooks, blogs, all on M&A, various topics. But if anybody's interested in learning about M&A, I, I always suggest that as a great place to start. And then we'll, we'll point on the show notes page, we'll point everyone also to your LinkedIn profile. And then there's also a LinkedIn profile for it as well. So we'll, we'll capture all of that. Again, this has been fantastic. I, I can't thank you enough for your time, Keeson. Hey, my pleasure, Mark. Enjoyed the conversation with you. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. What happens when you mash up M&A with Agile? In this case, in this context, a new mindset, a new method and technology that replaces Microsoft Excel. By the way, that last link, that website that Keyson was mentioning, mnascience.com, where they have 40 plus courses, 50 hours of materials, more than 50 hours, more than 25 instructors, and more than 2,000 students in their community. Again, that's mascience.com. The two books we talked about, well, really the main one, we talked about Agile M&A, and then the other book that we touched on briefly, M&A Tactics, and that's a narrative of quotes and some of the big ideas from Keyson's podcast, M&A Science. We need to call this a wrap. Again, thank you for listening. This is Mark Gandy, and this is CFO Bookshelf.